Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover the beginning of the Bill Watts era of WCW. It's WCW Beach Blast 1992. Kyush, when you think of the Bill Watts era of WCW, what springs to mind? Um, A man in gigantic Coke bottle glasses pissing out the window of Turner Broadcasting into the parking lot below. <laughs> That's a pretty good story. It's fair to say Bill Watts was not a great cultural fit for the very corporate environment of Turner Broadcasting. Oh, God, no. I mean, we've covered previously a little bit like how the circumstances that resulted in him leaving, including saying super racist comments whenever anyone put a microphone anywhere near his face and just being generally offensive. Bill Watts was not a man who was in any way ready or willing to be part of a corporate identity, no. which makes it so confusing that they put him in charge of this in the first place. Yeah. So it's 1992 in WCW and Bill Watts is the new sheriff in town. Um, Jim Hurd was let go at the beginning of 92. That was the culmination of his disastrous run that basically ended when he fired Ric Flair while Flair was still the WCW champion because he had antagonized Flair so much that Flair couldn't stand to continue to work for him. That was part of a larger exodus of talent as her just ran guys out of the company. Like just a rare combination of both an extremely unlikable guy who had no idea what he was doing. Like, I think there have been a lot of like people in charge of wrestling companies who are super ridiculously out of their depth and had no business doing it. But I think even today, even all these years later, he's still like the poster child for that. There's just it's hard to top. Like you hear about some of the insanely horrible ideas he proposed and some of the stuff that went on with him in charge. It and really the amazing thing is no one has ever just been handed a national scale wrestling promotion like that before. Like up until this point, there really had only ever been two Crockett and Vince, and they both built them up from scratch. This man is like literally being yeah. handed your fantasy wrestling yeah. scenario. After Turner bought the company, they were just like, Oh, let's put Jim in charge. Jim has some wrestling experience. It's literally yeah, what goes worked, on in your head. He worked in the St. Louis territory back in the day. I think he was one of the directors. Like anytime you've ever played like TW or like a booking simulator and you're just like in your head, it's like, oh, well, Vince fired himself and put me in charge. Yeah, here we go. I have all the pools and everything at my disposal. That's this. He had the resources of every of the whole universe at his disposal and he pissed it all away immediately. Yeah, just ran the company into the ground in Hurd's place on a temporary basis. They put a guy named Kip Fry in charge. He was a lawyer from Turner who didn't have any experience in wrestling. Basically, he just focused on the business side of things, and he let the wrestling people run the wrestling, which actually had pretty decent results. Like, it was a pretty decent few months for them where they started to turn the product around. They pushed the Dangerous Alliance. They launched the new WCW Saturday night. Um Fry is, I'd say, remembered fondly and also ridiculed for, you know, quote unquote, overpaying wrestlers whose contracts came up while he was in charge. Like famously, Pillman got a pretty sweet deal and Polly dangerously got one. Watts came in and immediately worked to change these things. I believe he told Pillman that he could either take a pay cut 
or get jobbed out for the rest of his contract. And Pillman told him he'd be the highest paid jobber in history. Okay, let's have a conversation about this, though, because like Watts takes a lot of the heat for that. But realistically, he was told that he needed to do yeah. that when he first came in. Yeah, like the the. Because what Kip Fry also did is he increased the production budget by a lot. He made the shows like look a lot bigger and like more like a national television broadcast rather than Which, just. These are all important things to do. The problem is they just really didn't have the money to do it. That's yeah. So like they're not bringing in a ton of money. He makes a lot of the right decisions. If the, if this were a successful company that he was taking over or even one that was so sort of like moderately making money giving the boys races to make them happy and increasing the production budget and making it a better looking show are all awesome ideas. Problem is it's out its ass. So when they get rid of him and they bring in Watts, Watts has to slash and burn. It's not up to him. In fact, they probably got him specifically because they knew he'd be financially conservative. Yeah. Watts has been out of wrestling for several years at this point. He hasn't worked since he sold the UWF. Uh, to WCW back in 1987. He was revered as one of the best bookers and executives ever in wrestling, but after five years gone, it's tough to get back in the game. I mean, you see this in sports all the time where like a coach is retired for a while, he does commentary, and then he comes back to coach, and it usually turns out that the game has just kind of passed him by. See, you know, John Gruden's current run with the Oakland Raiders. There seems to be in sports everywhere something like this going on all the time. And it just happened in WWE, too. Paul Heyman and Eric Bischoff Eric just got Bischoff, brought back yeah. in to run shows. Bruce Pritchard's doing it right now. Not because they're qualified for now, but because they've done it before, and that makes people feel safe. Yeah. it On some level, it seems like a slam dunk hire. Because like I said, circa 1985, like Bill Watts, if you had asked, like, you know, a Dave Meltzer, a wrestling journalist, or probably just about any promoter, like who's the best mind in wrestling? Like they probably would have said Bill Watts. I mean, he went national like that. It didn't last very long. So people forget about that. But like he is one of only three men ever to build a national wrestling promotion from scratch, or at least up to that point, he Vince and Crockett all kind of did it at the same time. And it wasn't his fault really that it failed. Like the, a lot of his territory had to do with like the oil crisis and there was a ton yeah. of money that dropped out of the territory. It wasn't yeah. his fault. It wasn't it his, dropped. yeah. It wasn't his fault that the economy, you know, in the Southwest crashed because suddenly oil prices dropped. Like it wasn't Bill Watts's fault that we suddenly had an oil glut in the eighties, but it totally um, crushed, you know, his business. And then like, he just basically did nothing after that. He was a complete free agent, yeah. but he, the point is, he is made that so he much succeeded. money in the sale. He just didn't really need to work. Like, like he got like a solid million bucks, like and pay out and he could just live on that in his investments. So if you're Turner or whoever is like actually hiring at the pine, like, and you're looking around like, okay, well, we're not going to bring Crockett back. Obviously Vince is Vince. Who's the only other guy who's ever done it. It's this guy. Watts. Not only that, he's known for making a lot out of like tighter resources than the other two had uh, had to deal with. He's and, known for getting yeah. the respect of his wrestlers. When, yeah, whenever anybody talks about WCW, whenever they talk about why WCW didn't succeed, it's always kind of like there was nobody really in charge. Right. And with Bill Watts, like Bill Watts is the sheriff. Like Bill Watts is going to run the show. Like Bill Watts has a million rules and he will fine you if you break them. There's no question Bill Watts is going to be in charge. 
I will say this. As let me lead off by saying that Bill Watts is a gigantic racist piece of shit. And we're going to say some positive things about him over the course of this show, but I don't want that to reflect positively about him as a human <laughs> being because fuck Bill Watts. Sure. But his vision here probably could have worked. And as we talk about this show, so, there is something here. I don't like something. all that. As much as something. everyone always mocks like all the rules that he put into place, like jumping off the top rope. And, oh, like, I've got, I've got a list of rules we'll go through later. Yes. So, like, as much as those are often mocked, and sometimes for good reason, he has a vision. He wants a company that actually has rules and, like, has an identity. Because at this point, WCW doesn't really have one. It's sort of like half the old school NWA and half a WWE light knockoff. He wants to create a separate company that has its own identity. And I completely understand that. The problem is, is that he's trying to do this while also, he was would have been a heat seeker anyway, but when Turner tells him he has to cut the budget and take everyone's salaries away, he becomes the most unpopular man in the history of the world. So the downsides to Watts. Um, I'd say there were four pillars to Mid-South Wrestling's success. Blood, violence, heat, and race. Yep. Um, none of those things are going to fly in Turner-owned WCW. His... It- Success also, you know, predated pay-per-view, which is, of course, the biggest moneymaker for a wrestling company in 1992. So he's never, you know, booked to pay-per-view. He's booked house shows. In order to succeed, he's going to have to change, not just as a booker and a promoter, but as a person. I would argue that as we go through the show, we'll see that he did try to change as a booker and promoter. As a person, he didn't. And that's what ultimately gets him shit canned. He was also the owner and booker of the territory, whereas in WCW, he has to work within Turner's corporate structure. Like he may be running the wrestling company, but he has to answer to Turner Sports, to the executive committee, to Ted Turner himself. And as we referenced, not a good cultural fit for the like famously liberal and politically correct Turner organization. Like this is a place where you couldn't say the word foreigner, like you said, foreign or foreigner you would be scolded. It's international. Uh, Bill Watts is not a great fit for that environment. Now, I will say that he probably was quite charming. If he had had a meeting with Turner, and I don't know if he did, but like Turner Broadcasting was a very entrepreneurial place. Like somebody like Bill Watts in that way absolutely could have fit in. Like they loved people who were like their own sheriff, self-made yeah. men who just want to go off. Part and do of what whatever. they liked about Bischoff was yeah. that he was, you know, he was a renegade. So that was probably working in his favor. The problem is he had to open his mouth about literally any political topic whatsoever. <laughs> Cause seriously, he's an asshole. <laughs> Watts was hired right before the May Wrestle War pay-per-view, so he didn't have a lot of involvement in that show. Uh, we covered that last year. That had the incredible Sting Squadron versus Dangerous Alliance War Games match that was like a true five-star classic. Also had uh, that great tag match where the Steiners just kicked the shit out of, um, who was it, Takayama Izuka? Yeah, that kicked ass. Just shot on the guy. (laughs) Uh, That was a pretty damn good pay-per-view. By July, the Dangerous Alliance has really been de-emphasized. They've gone from 
the top heel act in the promotion to kind of just, a you know, group of guys. I think this is due to Watts' issues with Paul Heyman. Um, yeah, it's pretty clear, like, he the, does not waste any time in making it clear who he values in this company. It seems like the camera is actively avoiding Heyman. Like, you can hear him yelling from the floor, but they don't shoot him. Like, literally in the very brief promo time that he gets on this show, the camera keeps swinging away from him to the other guy. Um, so, the th- so uh, Heyman had gotten Kip Fry to put him on an employee contract. Because he he had also done some announcing. When you're an employee, you get benefits, including your travel reimbursed. Now, isn't that a crazy idea that all these business expenses should be paid by the company instead of by the talent themselves? I don't even understand what you're talking about. That doesn't make any goddamn sense at all. But Heyman reacted to this by defrauding the company by booking <laughs> a bunch of fake flights that he never actually took and getting reimbursed for them. You can see, like, this is absolutely ECW Paul Heyman because he used this exact thing with lots of their guy. He would just yes. do that for the whole roster. The carniest scumbag. But yeah, I've, I've heard a story that, like, he started dating a woman who, like, worked at the airline and she could, like, make phony invoices for him. I just love that. Like, imagine that you're Paul Heyman, one of God's ugliest creations, and you're still <laughs> you still got enough stroke with the ladies to get him to commit fraud with you. Yeah. Like, I, I don't remember how much money this It didn't even end up being that much money. I heard, I heard it was like a couple thousand dollars, but like enough that like as soon as Watts comes in, you know, he's like, we need to audit all of Heyman's expenses because oh, he's yeah. looking looking for the reason he can fire him and he finds it quickly. That's the kind of guy that Watts is. It's just like, if he doesn't like you, you're going to be yeah. going to get getting out. Also, like, justified to fire him, he is ripping off the company. Oh, yeah. He's committing, he's committing literal fraud. They yeah. could have pressed charges against him. Um. So by this time, Watts has put many of his infamous rules in place, and they exist both in reality and kayfabe. Here are some of the rules as I have seen them reported. Yes. One, use of the ringside barriers or ring posts is a disqualification. Two, no fighting on the floor without permission. Three, no low blows. Four, all wrestlers must arrive at least one hour prior to showtime. Five, missing an event without justification is cause for immediate termination. Six, wrestlers who are injured must still attend the show even if they can't wrestle. Seven, no cursing in the ring that's audible to the crowd or the camera. Eight, no fraternizing between heels and baby faces. Nine, no top rope moves. Jumping off the top rope is a disqualification. 10. No blood. 11. No leaving before the show is over. 12. No playing cards in the dressing room. Now, some of these are reasonable. Like, yeah, no showing a show should probably get you fired if you don't have a good reason. Yeah. Asking people to arrive an hour prior to showtime is not unreasonable in my mind. Uh, let's actually go through these because they're kind of like wildly all over the place. 
So like, what was ringside that first one? Ringside barriers or ring posts. No using the ringside barriers or ring posts. I'm fine with that. I don't I mean, think you need those spots and matches. I think that was just him trying to get people to stop being so fucking lazy about the exact same spots. Yeah, yeah. Like actually wrestle work instead of just falling back on punch, kick, brawling. So I'm actually totally fine with that. Part of his vision is he wants the ring product to look different from the way that it's been looking for years. So, and make stuff matter again. Like yeah. make matter when somebody gets their head slammed into the ring post. Like that could be a hot angle if it didn't happen five times a show. Agreed. So that's a perfectly fine one. No fighting on the floor without permission. I'm fine with that one too. Like I think you can make fighting on the outside a special thing. Like we don't need the first match going out to the floor. Yeah, I mean, imagine how hot Falls Count Anywhere street yeah. fight matches would be if they never did that shit any other time. Like, yeah, absolutely. I'm th- I'm fine with that. No low blows. First offense is a $1,000 fine. Second is $2,500. Third is a $5,000 fine and termination. I mean, it's, again, like, Watts is big on no cheating unless it's actually done right because he thinks when you cheat and like it's not set up right you bury the referee when the referee has to just like turn his head and pretend not to see something i actually think this one's interesting and i would i don't know if he like specifically went on tv and said any of these rules to the fans but that would have been a good one to broadcast. I i think that might be a real one yeah that would have been a good one to broadcast to the fan base to be like look if a low blow if a heel does a low blow they're gonna be fine for that shit they can't just get away with it so, like, if, like, a chicken shit champion did one, not only would you have the heat of that, but, like, the heat of he's going to have to pay the fine, but this chicken shit still doesn't care. He also empowers the referees. Like, on this show, they make Ole Anderson the senior yeah. referee. Babyface referee Ole Anderson. Which is kind of a great idea. Like, to make referees actually be credible and, like, Old no one's going to push him around. hard-ass veteran. Yeah, yeah I, I kind of love that idea. Um, like we said, arriving at making the wrestlers arrive an hour prior to the show starting is not like today they have to get there at fucking noon for the eight o'clock shows or whatever. Like have telling them they have to be in the arena an hour prior is totally reasonable to me. Like That's if you were in one of the early matches, yeah, if you were in one of the early matches, you got to get there an hour early to you know change, get your gear on, get warmed up. Like, yeah, that's just part of being a professional. Yeah. Never understood the idea that guys would get there like in the middle of the show. But like Bret Hart, I think, was kind of t- notorious for that. I mean, if you know you're in the main events every single time and, you never, but... and you're like the best in the world and you could just do it with anybody, I guess you can get away with it. But yeah, that, it just never made sense to me that Vince allowed that. <laughs> Same thing. No, you know, no showing. Yeah, you should get fired if you just you get in the real world. If you just don't show up for work, you get fired. Ironically, there are actually uh, like laws in place. And I don't know if there were 1992 preventing you from firing somebody immediately based on that. Like there's like a four day waiting period and like you have to have like a paper trail or they get like automatic unemployment and this whole all this stuff. I don't know if those were the laws then, but not crazy. But like, you know, if somebody just doesn't show up and they don't have an excuse, that's not unreasonable that you're going to fire no. them. And it that. doesn't say automatic termination. It just says that they no. can terminate yeah. you. If it turns out like, oh, they were sick or they had a family emergency or there was bad weather and their flight got delayed, those are all reasonable circumstances. Right, exactly. But when it's just like, oh, they were too hungover, they didn't feel like coming to the show, yeah, that probably should get them fired. Sid passed a softball game on the way to the arena and he never yeah. got there. 
um, wrestlers who are injured must still attend the show, even if they can't wrestle. Like the idea is they're going to come out and do an appearance in front of the fans to demonstrate that like they weren't just blowing the show off. And with this one, there's also an exception for if they're seriously injured enough that it would be difficult for them to travel. That's the exception here. I don't, having this as an overarching rule doesn't make a lot of sense to me because like if the junkyard dog is too injured you don't need him at the arena for the show if yeah, my, my other concern would be is it going to interfere with their rehab yeah and like maybe like if it's within a certain distance to their home like if like if we're running anywhere in the south and you live in Florida, you got to come to that show. But if we're running in Canada, well, then it's stay only, home. If it's only a couple hours drive, but yeah, having somebody fly across the country doesn't make a ton of sense. So like, and I'm sure that there were actually stipulations like that in there. This is just kind of the overarching rule that he put into place. Uh, no cursing, audibly. I mean, That's it's they're like, promoting it's a, a kid's show. It's a family-friendly program. Like, I, I guarantee you, I mean, in the WWF at this time, if the camera caught you saying the F word, I know you'd be in trouble. Oh, word is that Nia Jax got fined for screaming my hole after she tore her <laughs> rectum. So, yeah, yes. I'm pretty sure you're right. <laughs> and this is, that's in 2021, not yeah. 30 years ago. Um, no fraternizing between heels and baby faces. This that's is some, some old school stuff. This I, is some dumb bullshit look i can sort of understand if it's two guys in a program together you don't want them just like hanging out together but just like how heels and baby faces can't be seen together is really like taking things back a little far this just flat out doesn't matter because let me make this perfectly clear you are a national program you're not running a territory anymore if people see somebody at ihop it doesn't matter because your next show isn't in alabama it's in chicago it doesn't fucking matter if people see your wrestlers fraternizing together. It doesn't. This is very based on the old days where you were running a territory in the same towns every week. Also, it's very much based on the idea that anyone believes this is real. And Bill, <laughs> yeah. the cat's out of the bag, bro. <laughs> Man, I would love to see an in-depth study of like in different eras, what percentage of the fans like thought wrestling was real. Cause I think it's always much lower than anybody believed. Oh I, God. Yes. I think even, I think even going back to the, tw- even when it may have been more of a shoot, I think people thought it was work. I mean, even in the South back in like the seventies where they were doing riots every night, yeah. I still think that mo- everyone knew it was fake. They just were able to suspend their disbelief yeah. easier. I think they were kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, they're all friends in the back. But, you know, when it's a championship match, they things get that gets serious. They fight for real. Yeah. I think if you like ask these old grannies who are throwing batteries at Jim Cornette, like, yeah, I'm sure the actual Jim Cornette's a fine person. But that character, Jim Cornette, I want him to die. Uh, no top rope moves. This may be the most infamous. I kind of I understand it. it. It doesn't I, work. And, like, the problem is, too, is that, like, this would be good if he was a heel authority figure. Yeah. And, like, if he had, like, a two-cold Scorpio here and he just kept finding Scorpio yeah, for doing that moves. If you did it that way. And, like, that's what he's always – that's what I've always heard the vision was, was it was going to make the guy who did it a badass. Which it just, probably would have worked. Yeah. 
I think, yeah, but again, it needs to be a heel authority figure and a high-flying babyface. And yeah, the crowd would have gone crazy when Scorpio broke out the 450 under these rules. And maybe this was a vision, his vision is like, maybe he turns heel down the road as an authority figure and feuds with Pillman or something like that. I don't know. But like, he wants to push the light heavyweights, but he wants to push them as mat wrestlers, not as high flyers. And we're in the 90s now, bro. Yeah. Um, no blood. I mean, yeah, there's no blood in the WWF at this point either. And this has been a rule for Turner. I mean, that's how Dusty that's got not fired. Even like a, that's not like even a Watts thing so much as it's just the company rule. They don't do Blade in. Right. No leaving before the show is over. This is asinine. This is like, I understand how promoters work themselves into this. Like, hey, youngins, if you want to learn, you got to watch the best work. Shut the fuck up. There's videotapes. Like, you don't have to do this. Imagine you're in the opening match, and then you have to stick around for another two and a half hours afterwards. Imagine you're in the dark match. You could be at the hotel and asleep before the show is over, and instead you're still sitting there, and then you might have a three-hour drive to the next town. This is a dumb idea, but it's only further compounded by the rule further down the list, which no is playing cards. Yeah. yeah you got to sit there and watch the action and do nothing else. What is wrong with playing cards? I, I just. Why that specifically? <laughs> this is 1992. There's no cell phones. There's no podcasts to listen to. Like, it's pretty fucking boring to just be sitting around in the arena at this point. Like, like you can, can read, read the book? newspaper. Yeah. You can read a book. And that's about it as far as things you can do. And, like, it seems to me like playing cards is like a bonding activity. Yeah. Like, that's that's not I the worst thing your wrestlers wow. could be doing. Like, if you want to make the rule after you're done with your match, we're going to have like a small section in the crowd for the wrestlers and you go out there and you watch the show and there's like a baby face side and a heel side. I could almost get behind that, especially for the younger guys. Yeah. Like I kind of like that AEW would do that. With the, with the leaving the show, maybe it is a little different with the young guys, but also for the young guys, like there's a lot of, educational value to the car rides like yes. you famously you learn a lot in the car with a veteran if they're willing to share the knowledge with you every single top star in this business have a story about a guy that they were on a nine-hour car ride with and he finally he just looked over at him and said kid here's how the wrestling business works and then they just laid it out it starts you know picking apart your match you shouldn't have done this you shouldn't have done this you should have done this at this time this was really good like yeah that's famously where a lot of guys really learned how to work was riding with veterans triple h has a famous story about how he was driving a car once and he thought everybody else was like passed out on pills and they all just suddenly like woke up and they were like let me tell you what was fucked up about your Jeff Jarrett match. And they just taught him wrestling for like three hours and then fell back asleep. So the featured match tonight is a non-titled no disqualification match between Cactus Jack and Sting. Sting is the world champion. He beat Lex Luger for the belt uh, back at Super Brawl in February. The storyline is that Cactus has been hired by Harley Race to soften up Sting for Vader. I don't know why the title isn't on the line. I, it might just be a Watts thing that like you can't have the title be on the line in a no disqualification match. I love the idea of Cactus Jack as like a sick mercenary who just like attacks everyone. I don't 
I, I, I would honestly love the idea if like they're not even paying him. They're just like, hey, <laughs> enjoys that. Yeah. Go kill Sting. Cool. I'm in. <laughs> but like, yeah, the idea that the belt isn't on the line. Because it would have honestly been kind of cool if, like, when Jack seems like he's going to win towards the end of this match, if, like, Vader stops yeah. him from winning. What if? Yeah. That could have, because they have a feud later in the year. That could have been why. We've also got Terry Gordy and Steve Williams against the Steiner brothers for the tag titles. Uh, Terry Gordy and Steve Williams are about as Bill Watts a tag team as you can get. What I love more than anything else is that the identity that Bill Watts is trying to create, and he doesn't know this, but what he's trying desperately to turn WCW into is King's Road All Japan. (laughs) He does not know what All Japan is. He's not aware that King's Road is a thing, but I I get the feeling that if he ever found out, he would just start masturbating furiously. (laughs) Um, And we've also got... um... Uh, Rick Rude versus Ricky Steamboat. Rick Rude is the U.S. champion, but the U.S. title will not be on the line. So we've got two non-title matches. I don't. I can't remember the last time I saw a pay-per-view with only two title matches on it. Pretty bizarre to have two non-title matches for the top two singles titles in the company. Also, have they retired all of like the United States tag titles and all of that bullshit? Are yeah, there still like thirty have, titles here? Well, the thing is, he's they're, they're bringing in the NWA tag titles, which um, they had they had taped a Clash of the Champions a couple days before this that airs a couple days after this, and that is all built around the NWA tag title tournament. And in the main event of that show, Gordy and Williams beat the Steiners to knock them out of the tournament. But Gordy and Williams end up winning eventually both the NWA tag belts and the WCW tag belts. Let me just say this. The best idea that Bill Watts has while he's running this company is the miracle violence connection against the Steiner brothers for tag supremacy. Cause that kicks ass. Yeah. Like, this is just four bad motherfuckers beating the shit out of each other. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, like I said, the Bill Watts style, but it's one I'm really into, and I think it's a good fit for this promotion and, like, kind of his vision for it. Yeah. He has two really strong ideas. They are, and when I say strong, I just mean, like, he feels them strongly, not that they're amazing ideas. But he wants to create a roster of tough, badass baby faces. That is what he had always pushed when he was like running all of the companies that he had been running. He always had like a tough guy who everybody respected and everybody could believe in up against like usually a bunch of chicken shit heels who would try to cheat him out of the belt. That is not what this company had ever had before, but that's his plan. He also desperately wants to push a black guy. And he there's only one on the roster. <laughs> Definitely cover that later in the show. Yeah. Um, so to get into the show, it's uh, Saturday, June the 20th, 1992. We're at the Mobile Civic Center in Mobile, Alabama. You just know a young Conrad Thompson was at this show. Oh, I'm sure. Is it weird that a show called Beach Blast is taking place in Mobile, Alabama? A little bit. That is definitely not on the coast. It's weird. Um, there's like 4,000 people in attendance 3200 paid for about a $28,000 gate. Not great numbers. This um, sucks. Uh, the the civics that this arena definitely holds more than that. Like they've run like Monday Night Raws here. Um I'm going to guess this is probably about a 10,000 seat arena. 
I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it, it certainly. Yeah, 10,000 10, for the main building. This crowd didn't feel empty, but it had so no. little energy. And now that makes sense that you say that because it's that's the kind of energy you get when there's like not a huge yeah. crowd packed I'm, into a big arena. I'm guessing they had like the entire crowd on the side facing the hard camera because they and they just shot it tight. But I'm this was you know half empty. I get why they do that for like the card camera and to make it look good at home. But I also feel like if you're at the show and you're looking across the ring at empty seats, doesn't that that just kill the vibe? Yeah. Uh, The show does an awful buy rate, only a 0.4, which is like 70,000 buys. That's only about a $700,000 gross for WCW. Once Once you've paid for the satellite time, paid the talent, rented the arena, there wasn't a whole lot of money left over. This was probably barely profitable. Where is this company supposed to be making money? They don't have any merchandise. They don't have any distribution. The pay-per-views aren't drawing. Yeah, like they have no real revenue streams here. They get nothing for their TV because the company owns them. Exactly. (laughs) Like there's nothing here. On commentary, we've got the team of Jim Ross and Jesse Ventura, who entertained me pretty well tonight. I loved Jesse here. Like this is before Jesse like completely checks out and he just doesn't yeah. give a shit anymore. Like Jesse kicks ass. This is like old Jesse. In the dark match, the junkyard dog, Tom Zenk and big Josh defeated Tracy Smothers, Richard Morton and diamond Dallas page. I kind of wish that we had gotten to see this just cause it sounds like a train wreck. Tough times for the JYD when he can't even get booked on a Bill Watts show. Also, how weird is it that DDP is already here in 1992? <laughs> Him and Buff Bagwell are two guys who like you're always shocked how early they were around. It's fucking crazy. Like, I, th- I thought Buff Bagwell was a rookie in like 1997, and he had been in the company five years. I always like to recall that I believe 1991 Bagwell wins Rookie of the Year by The Observer. Sounds right. Yeah. Um, uh, the quick intro and then Tony Schiavone and Eric Bischoff welcome us to the show. They bring out Bill Watts, who probably should not be on camera, but he runs through the matches tonight. He says, Polly Dangerously and Medusa are banned from ringside for the U.S. title match, which isn't actually for the U.S. title. Nope. I, about I don't. I don't remember. I don't want to besmirch him by saying he referred to it as that, but that is what I wrote down. He may have just said the Iron Man match. I will say this: I don't hate the idea of a character that we, as the audience, understand to be the guy who puts together yeah. the show, coming out at the beginning of the show to be like, "This is what I've put together for you guys tonight." Bam, yeah. bam, 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 bam. And then that's uh, Tony Khan should never appear on AEW TV. That's the problem: is that the vast majority of people who have ever been in this position should not be on television, and he is on that list. But it helps him. The promo is very bad, but what he is able to do is kind of give you a sense as to what the vision is that he's putting together. And it really helps. Like, it helps to understand why they're doing matches the way they're doing them. And he just keeps repeating, like, all of those rules that I put into place, we've agreed ahead of time, signed a contract, and Sting and Cactus Jack do not have to follow any of those rules, but only because they both agreed to it contractually beforehand. I don't mind that. Like, that, that makes sense to me. And then we go to Jim Ross at ringside, and then we see Jesse Ventura being rubbed down by some women in swimsuits, <laughs> and Jesse comes down to ringside to join JR. I 
I go back and forth on this Jesse Jr. team. Some nights they're really they just they don't have a lot of chemistry because Jr. cannot stand Jesse like for real. Can but I say, sometimes that really works, but other times it's just really awkward. Can I say something controversial here? What's that? For a national wrestling promotion in the 90s, JR sucks. And I, do, I don't mean that he's bad in that he's a bad announcer. Obviously, he's a phenomenal announcer. But, like, he has he projects, like, absolutely no character here whatsoever until Vince literally forces one on him. Like, and then he fights it the whole time. But that JR just exudes personality yeah, in a way that this a, JR does not. It's a very different Jim Ross here. This isn't good old JR. Like, he this is, is a very buttoned down, like, serious, no sense of humor, like, no charisma. Yeah, it's very different. He's determined to be Gordon Soley, even though his potential is to be something much, much greater. It's unfortunate. I, I honestly feel like Tony Schiavone would be a better fit here. Because um, I think at least, Tony would at least sell for Jesse. Yeah. And I think that would be, I think it would be a more entertaining give and take between them. And like the show that they're trying to present is a little bit, how do, how do I put this? Charisma free. That's not something that Bill Watts is really promoting right now. So like to have more fun announcers kind of bringing life to it would help instead of it being very, very, very dry. <laughs> Uh, then for the light heavyweight title, uh, this is our opener. We've got Brian Pillman defending against Scotty Flamingo. Scotty Flamingo is Raven with a wildly different gimmick. Um, here he's like a pretty boy beach bum. He kind of looks awesome here. He, he's in great shape. He's it's, ripped. Man, it's weird to see Raven. Yeah, Scotty the body. It's weird to see Raven as a pretty boy, but... You know, it like you can see it, but also every time you look at him, you're like, oh shit, that's Raven, that's the dirty grungy guy. It's so funny because he's still got the hair, but it's yeah. like wet, so it's not like all dry and stringy like it would become later. Like, it, it's so funny, but also especially during this match too, you really get a sense for what Raven could have been. Like he could have just done it as a normal wrestler without the Raven character. Like he was good. Yeah. No, this is a very good match. Um. They do a lot of mat wrestling um, for the first five minutes. They grapple like Pillman dumps Flamingo over the top to the floor. And we should note there's no mats on the floor. It's just a concrete floor as per the Bill Watts rules. Of course. Yeah. No mats on the floor, which that is so dumb to me. Like That's the dumbest. That's the single dumbest part. That's yeah. even dumber than the no playing cards is like. You just want them to get hurt then? Because the fans don't give yeah. a shit. There's nothing impressive about falling on a concrete floor. In fact, falling on a mat sounds like it makes a big sound when you hit the mat. So it seems bigger, even though you're landing on padding. Yeah. When WWE went to like the black like yeah. pads that they have now, do you ever does it ever even cross your mind that it's pads? No, no, it's just the floor. <laughs> no, and like the elimination chamber got way better when they put the pads down over the grating because people could actually take bumps on it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like all you're doing is making it less impressive stuff that they have yeah. access to doing. Yeah, it's a work, brother. I think that was honestly just to discourage them from fighting on the yes. outside. Because it like, would hurt. Like, because he probably felt like a lot of people would disobey that. He's like, well, then I'll make it hurt like shit if you do it. 
Uh, Pillman goes to the top, which, of course, this would be a disqualification if he hits a move from up there. But Flamingo throws him off and he takes over the match. Um, Flamingo throws Pillman out to the floor. He hits a plancha. Um, Flamingo charges into Pillman in the corner, but uh, Pillman slingshots into the ring with a crossbody for a two count. Flamingo cuts his comeback off with the clothesline. Uh, Flamingo puts on a chin lock, and Jesse does some good commentary here as he explains that both guys are tired, but this hold is going to allow Flamingo to catch his breath while he's still wearing down Pillman. So Jesse literally calls it a rest hold, but I really like the use of that term here. I like the idea because a rest hold is a real thing in like amateur wrestling. Yeah. Like the- there is such a thing. Like, it's not meant to be, like, an insult to the wrestler doing it. Like, it yeah, became in smart terminology later. You've got to recover at some point. Like, wrestling is really exhausting. You have yeah. to catch your breath at some point. So, yeah, sometimes you're just going to kind of get on the guy's back and lay on him. Absolutely. Uh, Pillman fights out. They do a double knockdown spot, as the announcer calls 15 minutes gone by. Uh, they both rake each other's eyes. Flamingo comes off the second rope, but Pillman catches him with a drop kick on the way down. Uh, Pillman hits a spinning heel kick. Um, then Pillman does a 10 punch. He gets caught with a power slam for a close two count. Flamingo showboats on the second rope and gets back suplexed off. Pillman covers, but Flamingo gets a foot on the ropes. Um, Pillman hits a face buster and a clothesline that sends Flamingo over the top onto the ramp. Pillman dives over the top rope, but misses and just lands face first down on the ramp. That was brutal. This is just, that ramp is just made of wood and not like thin wood, like wood. Wood thick enough these guys can walk on. And then it's got just like a thin little piece of carpet on top. Like, every time somebody lands on this thing, it's like, it's worse than the ground. Like, yeah. the rocky, stony ground. Somebody's got to bring back this ramp that connected to the ring. I love this. You can do so many fun things with this thing. AEW was doing that for a while before, like, for their pay-per-views and stuff, weren't they? Yeah, and they, don't they have it at the Dailies place, didn't they? Yeah, they do. That's why, yeah. It'll be interesting to see if they continue that. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Um, Flamingo hits a knee drop from the second rope and gets the pin to win the title. It was an excellent opening match. Um, I don't really remember what became of the light heavyweight title after this. I think that was kind of a Watts initiative that faded once he was gone. Um, but I guess if I was going to nitpick this, there wasn't really much of any difference between this and a heavyweight match, like style, style, style wise. The vision that he had as he lays it out before the show starts is that light heavyweights, since they don't have as much power, have to rely more on technique. So he wanted them to be like the technical wrestlers. So he wanted this to be like a division of like Benoit's and Jericho's and stuff like that, Um, which I get, especially since he wanted to fill the heavyweight division with like Gordy and Williams and a bunch of like clubbing badasses. Because it would have felt different. Like, all the traditional classic style wrestling matches would have been light heavyweight matches. And the heavyweight division would have been, like, a bunch of bomb-dropping awesome dudes. But I don't—he didn't have the roster for that distinction to be made, really. Like, in order to really run a light heavyweight division of any sort, you've got to have, like, half of your roster be light heavyweights. That's what WCW understood under Bischoff. 
Because it only really works if you have that stable of like 800 dudes to choose from. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just like the same three dudes and it doesn't feel different. No, that is the other thing is when you think about this roster, like how many light heavyweights do they really have? Realistically, Flamingo and Pillman aren't really heavy, aren't really light heavyweights either. Yeah, they're pretty big to be cruiserweights. Pillman, I don't know, 220, 225 pounds. I mean, is Pillman physically distinguishable from Terry Taylor in terms of size? I really no, don't think really. so. Uh, next up, Johnny B. Bad comes out to MC a bikini mm. contest. They're going to let the fans vote on the winner by calling the 900 number. Um, Jesse on commentary is complaining that he should be the one running the contest and asks whether Johnny likes girls. Um, A couple things. First of all, I don't really remember WCW ever doing a lot of this. No, this is unusual. But it's so refreshing to see a version of this that's not emceed by Jerry Lawler. Yes. Because, like... Johnny Doesn't B. Bad be that skeezy. in his incredibly asexual, androgynous yeah. like character makes this not creepy. No. Seems like he's just having a good time. It feels like more an appreciation of two attractive women than it is like a boy, I'd really like to fuck her in the car later. <laughs> it's nice. Uh, so the way this works, round one, they're gonna be in gowns. So Missy Hyatt comes out in a gown. And then Medusa comes out in a wedding dress with a veil on. And then we go back to the announcers. That was part one. It's pretty funny to do this in three phases like this. Yeah. Also, part of the gimmick of this show is I've mentioned over the years many things that I've paid for in wrestling that are horrifically embarrassing, or at least would be to people with more shame than me. Even I wouldn't have dialed a 900 number in the 90s in order to vote on who I'd rather fuck, Medusa or Missy Hyatt. I love the carny aspect where at one point they announced that Medusa is up like 51% to 49% like, to try to get more people up. to vote. No, yeah. but who would vote for this? Also, like, the idea that this would be in doubt when it's a heel and a baby face. Like, it's not a thing. Uh, next up, we've got Ron Simmons against the tailor-made man, who is Terry Taylor in a gimmick where he wears a tuxedo. Is that also a Bill Watts thing? Where like Brian Pillman is not Brian Pillman; he is think, flying Brian. I think that predated Watts. I'm pretty sure he was doing this gimmick before Watts came in. Okay, and Terry Taylor is not Terry Ta- Taylor. He's the tailor-made man. That's his name. He's the tailor-made man. <laughs> Uh, Ron Simmons comes out. He is, of course, about to get an absolutely massive push with Watts in charge. Like six weeks after this, he's going to be the world champion. And he can see it, but he's not ready for that yet. Not even slightly. First of all, you can tell that he's going to be world champion because they suddenly have him wearing like the brightest ass colors known to man, which is how you know who's a baby face. Second of all, his look is bad. It's and he's so, not, so 80s, like the long curly hair. The yeah, somebody should have just shaved his head at some point. Yeah. It would have been really good for him. And like his talking is not there. This character is brand new for him. Like he's. I, I don't really know how you get Ron Simmons ready in a year because he's just not. No, he they should have put the U.S. title on him this summer would have been a more reasonable level for him to be at. Truthfully, he should have been a heel who turns face later. Like, that's the best way to get him into the main event. 
Yeah, because then, then you could have Harley Race manage him. Yeah, and then turn him down the road. Like, that's the best mm-hmm. way. But Watts wants him now. Yeah. Watts wants his black baby face. Like, that's what he had success with in Mid-South Wrestling. But unfortunately for him, the old JYD was not walking in the door. And, like, here's the thing, is that, like, this is just a kind of fetishism. Like, the reason that JYD worked so well is because he was primarily promoting him to, like, black audiences. That's that's what was in Louisiana. That's what was in Alabama and Mississippi. He got, over, he got over with the white fans, too. He did. But, like, there's a, there's a specific yeah. reason why he worked for that specific demographic. And, like... JYD probably would have worked in front of anybody, but there was a reason why he started pushing him specifically. But it wasn't just because he was black, obviously. Like, he just had charisma out the ass. Trying to replicate that by picking the nearest black dude is not going to work. And, like, I love Ron Simmons, and he's credible for days. But that's a huge misstep here. And it's I wish I could say it was born out of some sort of progressism, but it's it's the opposite. He's just trying to replicate it by picking the nearest black dude. Uh, This is Simmons wins in seven minutes with the power slam. It's a pretty basic match, but it achieves everything it needs to. It just puts Simmons over really strong, and that's what they're looking to do here. And like I said, I would be fine if for six months he just destroyed people like Terry Taylor. There's a lot of them on these shows. That's fine. Uh, JR interviews Simmons after the match. Simmons says his ultimate goal is to be the world champion. He says he's living proof that you can beat the odds as long as you work hard. This isn't not the greatest promo now. It's not the greatest promo. And to like they're portraying him as like the ultimate underdog. Like that's sort of his deal. The problem with that is that he's Ron Simmons. Yeah. He's a badass. He's one of the greatest college football players who ever lived. He's a guy who looks jacked, even though he never works out like he was just born this way. (laughs) Like, it doesn't work. He's like 6'4", 230, a pure muscle. He doesn't work as an underdog. No. And then we've got Marcus Bagwell versus Greg Valentine. Um, Bagwell looks 16 years old. He's actually 22, but man, he looks like a child. And if you're wondering, Valentine is 41 and looks 50. He like Valentine looks older than anyone I've ever seen, like in a wrestling outfit, like somehow flair at 65 looked younger than this. Valentine was just one of those guys who always looked old. He just had that like droopy dog face. And there's something about still and like, look, this is maybe the meanest thing I've ever said about somebody on this show who like, as far as I'm aware, Greg Valentine is a pretty inoffensive dude. He's never been caught up in any sort of scandal or anything like that. Nobody has anything particularly bad to say about him. But the problem is, is that like, and God help me for saying this, he's just too damn ugly to be on television like this. He's from the territory era. And I can't think of a wrestler who more looks like they should have stayed there. It's yeah. And yet he gets the win here as he, you know, picks Bagwell apart, works over his knee and taps him out with the figure four. I don't really I don't understand the desire to push Greg Valentine at this point and very weird to be putting him over Bagwell, who it seems like they should have you know, been thinking they could do something with eventually. Also, this is kind of a face versus face match. It's weird. I cuz Valentine always seems like a heel to me, but the crowd was definitely behind him here. Like they definitely cheered when he tapped Bagwell out. Yeah, they're pushing him as like a wily old veteran babyface. 
And like Bagwell, though, is not a heel here. He's he's playing a, a young, plucky, up and coming baby face. Yeah. It's pretty weird. And like he beats Bagwell clean as a fucking whistle. He destroys him, basically. Like this is a burial of Bagwell. Yeah. Can't explain that. Um, Watts didn't like pretty boys. Next up, we've got the Falls Count Anywhere match as Sting takes on Cactus Jack. Um, as we said earlier, the title is not on the line here. Uh, they start out by fighting on the ramp. Um, Sting dives at Cactus, who ducks it, and Sting hurts his knee landing on the ropes. Um, Cactus does his signature elbow drop off the apron, so he's just dropping right onto the concrete floor. That is not a good bump. There. Cactus Jack during this era has three signature moves. They are as follows. He runs down the down the apron and drops an elbow onto the like the concrete. He does a running sunset flip off the apron where he splashes into the concrete. And then he gets on the top fucking rope and dives to the outside where he lands on the concrete. Just a crazy man. This I this is not one of the more famous crazy McFoley matches, but it probably should be because he takes like five just awful bumps on the concrete here. You can feel not enough is made of McFoley's time in WCW, which I feel is like one of the most interesting parts of his story is that he's so desperate to make it and he shouldn't. Because, like, his look is going against him, his style is going against him, nobody believes in him. But he just keeps delivering these, like, fascinating performances that people keep just keep booking him and keep booking him. He just somehow keeps hanging on until eventually something happens with him and ECW that gets finally connects. But, like, here, he considered this the best match of his career for a very long time. He dies in this match. And the match basically only makes Sting look good. And that says everything about his philosophy at this point. Cactus does a swinging neck breaker where he hits his head on the concrete floor. And then just a whore. He has a sunset flip out like on the concrete and he just splats, just flat backs on the concrete floor. Yeah. Half of his body hits the concrete. Ugh. The other half like flings his leg directly into the guardrail. Why? To do a sunset flip. Which the shittiest no move in wrestling. No reaction for that. Like, I, I just... <laughs> now, let, let's not detract. Like, this is very hard to watch him do this to himself. This match is amazing, though. Oh, this is awesome. I loved this match. I did... I mean, there were. I cringed a lot because I just could see how bad this was all hurting fully, but... You know, it's a great match. Um, and the, I mean, I, of course, Cactus is doing crazy stuff, but I, what I really loved is just seeing Sting be so aggressive and mean. You do, you need to understand where Sting was at this point. He, he's been made the face of a company that is utterly tumultuous. He was basically didn't really get put over as the face since Flair left before he could really submit him as the guy. So he's just been kind of in limbo. He's mostly been wrestling like dickheads and trying to carry them to watchable performances it's been bad times for him he's wrestling the same match day in and day out he gets put in here with mick mick walks out right at the beginning and kneels down on the ramp and like does like the come on thing to sting sting walks out takes his robe off takes his belt off and has the biggest fucking smile on his face because i think sting was so excited to do something different 
Like Sting does shit in this match. He does like a 25 foot like stinger splash where he jumps the entire length of the rampway and like crotches himself on the turnbuckle. It's crazy. This is a vision of like the sting we could have gotten. Uh, and cactus, cactus gets a chair and he hits sting in the back three times with it. But sting comes back with a back suplex on the floor. And again, Cactus's head just snaps off the concrete. It's amazing that he lived through this era. Oh, God, it's horrible. He, it's just, he did stuff like this all the time. He would take these concrete bumps and just random TV matches. And I just want to remind everybody that, like, it's like, I think the next year where Flair tells him, like, if you keep doing this shit, you're going to be out of the business at 30. And, and Mick he Foley, was like, right. Yeah, Mick Foley had, like, heat with him for years. It's like, fuck him. How dare he tell me that? But yeah. it did. He had to retire at 32 or 34, right? He didn't yeah. make it to 35. He retired before most people even get to WWE yeah. now. <laughs> but again, like, did he have a choice? Because this shit is the only reason he's making it on these shows. Not getting over with his look, no. And they're not letting him cut promos. Nobody even knows he can cut a promo yet. <laughs> Sting does that stinger splash where he just, like, flies through the air and lands on the guardrail. It's so cool. <laughs> and then, of, of all the terrible bumps Foley has taken so far, this might be the worst. He goes to do an elbow drop off the second rope to the floor. Sting moves, and he just lands on his knees on the concrete. Oh. Like, I can't imagine how much that must have hurt. Like... If you're Sting and you guys are plotting that match out, He's you can't in good conscience move. No. you got to catch him. You have to. Sting gets a chair. He hits Cactus with it. He hits him in the leg. He goes for the Scorpion Deathlock, but Cactus manages to trip him, and they both fall off the ramp. That was a uh, very cool spot. Sting then hits a clothesline. He goes to the top and comes off with a flying clothesline down onto the ramp, and he gets the pin. Great match. I mean, if you've never seen this, I think you got to watch this. This is one of the craziest performances of Foley's career. This is one of the best sub 15 minute matches that you will ever see in your life. Yeah, I think this was like 12 and a half. Part of it is Foley's willingness to murder himself. But honestly, some of those spots weren't really necessary to make this match special. The best part of this match to me is just seeing the side of Sting that it brings out. Like, we've never seen him be this aggressive, try these kind of moves. Like, he can't do them with most people. Like, there was a much better wrestler in Sting that we didn't get during his prime. It's kind of, it's, we were talking earlier before the show started about how Sting from this era is basically just John Cena circa 2007. Yeah. And it's like, when you got John Cena in there with the right guy, something wildly special would come out. Yeah, John Cena versus Umaga, that kind of thing. Yeah, this is basically that match. It's very similar, of just like a different side of him comes out when he's allowed to show it. But then the next week, he's sucking it up again in the ring with like Booker T, because that's just not the kind of style he wants to work. Uh, Next up, we've got our 30-minute Iron Man match, uh, Rick Rude versus Ricky Steamboat. Um, Rude gets to the ring. He does one of his typical promos. He wants these, you know, fat, out of shape, Alabama assholes. I, I don't remember what the insult was, um, you know, to shut their mouths while he showed them what a real man looks like. I popped 
when he took his robe off because I could not believe how good of shape he was in. Even though that's his gimmick, even though we've seen him yeah. looking good so many times Holy before. shit. Every his time abs you, must be six inches deep. Every time you see this man with his shirt off, it is like, I, I there's, I don't understand how he even manages to do Like, what workout it's do you possible do? possible for somebody to be in this good of shape. And this is, and like, this is, especially in this period where he's really kind of slimmed down and went to more of a swimmer's build. He's not yes. as bulky. God, he looks incredible. And there's no one in the wrestling industry with a body yeah. like this at this point. Everyone's either, like, sloppy big because they're on steroids or they're, like, skinny this dude is just like so cut nobody has ever been this cut I, i'm not sure i've ever seen anybody this cut no i'm still... trying to think of a better body and like you can be this cut but like at a certain point most people start to look kind of gross you know what yeah. i mean like they just start to get like all bones and ribs but he's not he's somehow managed to just like his whole body's in great shape but just he just centers on his ribs he must have been like taking 50 pound barbells to do sit-ups with or some shit. I can't even imagine. Um, Steamboat comes down with his wife and son. Um, Jesse asks whether he's going to give us a lecture on family values and says that next we'll have Dan Quayle down here. JR reassures us that Steamboat knows how to spell potato. That made me chuckle. That is funny. It's it's not a reference that has aged amazingly well now, but it's something you've kind of forgotten about now. But famously, Dan Quayle was like, I don't know, doing a spelling bee with some elementary school kids. And one of the kids was spelling potato and he spelled it correctly. And Quayle kept telling him that there was an E on the end, which there is not. Like literally, this became a meme that ruined it's... his political career. Yeah, like just destroyed the guy, ended his chance to ever be president. This p- career politician, who there was nothing really particularly bad about, gets labeled the stupidest man who yes. walks the earth for the rest of his life. For like what is an un- like it's an understandable mistake. I can imagine myself in the moment thinking there's an e on the end of potato. But just imagine that you misspeak one it's- time. I mean, it's I guess the only other corollary is like what, like the Howard Dean thing where he makes one loud yeah, noise like at that. one rally and it destroys his career. The thing that's so interesting to me is how the shock jock of the time like aims their fire at the right. Whereas today, like feels like no question the Jesse Ventura character would be like making fun of liberals. Oh, for fuck's sake. Absolutely. Yes. Like, it's just how like our culture has shifted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From the target being the family values conservatives to now, like, the politically correct liberals. I mean, that's Corey Graves' whole shtick, and he's basically trying to be Jesse Ventura with every word that he says. Um, So Steamboat starts really fast with attacks on Rude's midsection. Uh, This lasts for several minutes with Rude getting in no offense at all. Um. I believe at one point Jesse compares Steamboat to Dr. No from the original James Bond movie. He does. That was weird. (laughs) They're both, you know, Asian-ish. Yeah. Both Hawaiian, I think. Not Jesse's best moment. (laughs) Um... Uh, Rude catches Steamboat with a knee as he's charging into the corner and then grabs the tights to get the pin to go up 1-0. 
We're eight minutes into the match. Rude has gotten in one offensive move, but he's still up one zip. Rude. There are some Iron Man matches. There are only like a few good Iron Man matches, but they all revolve around the heel having like an amazing strategy. Yeah. And like, this is one of those, especially when we get to what you're about to talk about. Cause like rude pulls one of like the best five minutes that anyone's ever had in an Iron Man match out of his ass. <laughs> Uh, we go straight to the second fall. Rude hits the Rude Awakening and gets the pin. So he goes goes up 2-0 with 21 minutes left. Um, Rude then gets himself disqualified for hitting a top rope knee drop. That cuts it to 2-1 to one, Rude with 20 minutes to go. But Rude immediately gets Steamboat with a small package to go up 3-1 to one with 19 minutes left. I think that was the first time that that... that you know, same sequence has been used in many of these matches. Like Triple H did it to The Rock in their Iron Man match. Brock definitely did it to Kurt Angle, but I think this is the innovator. I agree. Yeah, I think so. And it's just such a good idea. Like it, it makes you feel only like ten minutes into this match, like it's over. Like there's no way to come back from it. Uh, Rude is in full control. He tries to do his signature dance move, but his ribs are too hurt, which is a great piece of selling. I and love gen- it. Genuinely funny. Yes, I have had a very good time with that. <laughs> I gotta gotta plug the uh, Rick Rude taking Atomic Drops Twitter account once again, because man, could this man sell? It's one of the only pure things in the world is Rick Rude taking Atomic Drops. <laughs> And just spending like five minutes being like, oh, God, my ass. Oh, oh, it hurts so much. This is probably another good time to point out that like sometimes Rick Rude would be literally the greatest wrestler who's ever lived. And then other times he would be basically the worst wrestler who's ever lived. Steamboat had one of the shittiest pay-per-view matches I've ever seen at the original Royal Rumble. I guess technically it wasn't pay-per-view, but just like an awful stink bomb of a match. And here they tear the house down. Like you just never knew which Rick Rude you were going to get. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like those, that match against Shono legendarily one of the worst matches we've ever reviewed. Yeah. Rick Rude and Masahiro Chono, two of the biggest stars ever, two of the best workers ever literally had what is i think up there with like trish stratus and chris nowitzki versus jackie gata and jbl or whatever the fuck that match was is like the two worst matches ever contested uh steamboat comes back with a back suplex but he can't follow up uh rude hooks a chin lock as we're halfway home with 15 minutes to go Rude hits a big pile driver, but Steamboat gets his shoulder up. Rude goes for a tombstone in an awesome spot. Steamboat reverses it, hits his own tombstone, and gets the pin. There's 12 minutes to go, and Steamboat cuts the lead to 3-2 to two for Rude. How much would Ricky Steamboat's career have been different if the tombstone was just his finisher? Because I feel like he could have been a top guy with that. I think he would have. He, I think he hits it as well as anybody. He fucking I, kills it. I love that reversal where one guy's got the other guy up for the tombstone and they bend him backwards. It always makes me worry because depending on who the guy at the back end of that is, like if you can't, that's such yeah. a hard angle to get a guy up. Because, like, literally, he has to throw all of his weight back at you, or there's just no way to bench him up then. basically what happened with Undertaker and Reigns at that WrestleMania match. Yeah. Like, if it's too much weight and you can't handle it, like, you're going down. 
Uh, Rude goes to the top. Steamboat cuts him off. Steamboat hits a superplex. I don't really know why that's not a disqualification. Yeah, why he's you, the one performing the move off the yeah, top rope, you is he not? throw somebody off the top rope, but you can't jump off onto them. Because like that, because he did throw, jump off the top rope. He just took Rude with him. That should be illegal. I'm writing to my governor. Uh, Steamboat bridges out of a pin and gets uh, Rude in a backslide with nine minutes and 30 seconds left, and we're tied at three to three. Um, Steamboat is relentless going for pins, but Rude keeps kicking out. Uh, this match is just a tribute to both these guys' incredible cardio. Like, like this becomes just like a chain wrestling exhibition, yeah. and we're already like 20 minutes in. <laughs> They've got a hard 20 minutes, too. There's been tons of moves so far. And they haven't slowed down for one minute. There's no rest holds in this shit. Uh, Rude turns the tide. He sets up for the Rude Awakening, but Steamboat blocks it. Steamboat hits the Rude Awakening, but Rude is able to get a foot on the ropes. Um, That breaks up the pin. And we're down to five minutes. Um, Rude gets Steamboat in a sleeper with four minutes left. He holds it. We get down to two minutes. Steamboat is fading. With one minute to go, the ref checks Steamboat, but the arm doesn't drop. Steamboat manages to crawl his way up the ropes. He kicks off and gets the pin with 30 seconds left, and he goes up four to three. Rude loses his goddamn mind at this yes. point and just starts like hitting Steamboat with every move in his yeah. arsenal. Just a frenzy, you know, clothesline after clothesline, body slams, and Steamboat keeps kicking out. Um, time expires. Steamboat holds on to get the win. Great, great match. Um, of course, would have been better if it had been for the title. I don't really know why this was not in title. Yeah, it definitely should have been for the fucking title. <laughs> Like, th- there's nothing you can say that isn't positive about this match. Like, this is what an Iron Man match is meant to be. Normally, I would say this is way too many falls, but the way that they constructed it, it made total sense. They weren't just cheap falls. It wasn't like a guy taking, like, three finishers across the course of the match, and then the other guy looks like an asshole. Like, this worked perfectly. Yeah. And 30 minutes is a tolerable amount. of Like, 60-minute Iron Man matches, I find, tend to drag 30 minutes. You get two good workers in there. They can definitely make a 30-minute match work. Yeah, there has never been a great 60-minute Iron Man match. There have been good ones, and there have been very, very bad ones. Y'all know which match I'm talking about. <laughs> um, Johnny B. Bad is back out for round two of the swimsuit contest. Uh, the women both walk in one pieces this time. There's still a third part left, which will be the bikini round. Steve, if you were scoring this competition, who would you have? Uh, I thought thought Missy Hyatt get, gets the edge, but I, I thought Medusa held her own. I agree. Um, then we've got a six-man tag match with Arn Anderson, Steve Austin, Bobby Eaton against Dustin Rhodes, Nikita Koloff, and Barry Windham. Um, this is Ole Anderson as the referee. They're trying to get him over as like the top babyface referee. Um, Anderson, Austin, and Eaton are the dangerous alliance. I think Paul Heyman was out there for this one, but the he was, yes. cameras seem to be avoiding him as much as possible. At one point, he walks over to the camera and starts talking, and they switch <laughs> to a different camera angle. Yeah, like, feels like there's no question Watts is phasing him out. It's also so clear that, like, of these people, you have, like, Dustin Rhodes, Steve Austin, 
Uh, you have Arn Anderson. You have like Bobby Eaton, Barry Windham. There's cool people here. The person they're pushing the hardest in this match is Ole Anderson. Yeah. Well, he's the booker, so. Yep. <laughs> uh, the faces dominate for the first couple minutes. The heels bail out to the floor to regroup. Um, Dustin gets caught in the heel corner and worked over. This like three-man combination is about as good as it gets as far as working heat. Like, I almost wish there had been, like, six-man t- yeah. titles in this company, because these Man, three kill it. Yeah, but, just watching these guys pick somebody apart. Like, Eaton is, like, the perfect technician, Anderson's, like, the wily vet, and Austin is, like, the most athletic kinetic yeah. dude you've ever seen. Hockey shithead. God, I, lo- I love WCW Austin so much. It's just one of those things, it's like... If you have only ever seen his WWF work, which is obviously amazing and he was a gigantic star, you're just missing out on so much when he was so much more athletic and flexible back before he had his injuries. You would just never know that he was one of like the best chicken shit mid card heels yeah. in wrestling history. Like you would just never get that. Uh, Dustin finally manages to tag Wyndham. Um, Wyndham comes in hot. He hits a superplex on Austin. Arn comes off the top rope with a fist on Wyndham, and Ole catches it and calls for a disqualification. I mean, I guess if your objective was to get Ole over, you did that. Yeah. I mean, they're really just trying to put the rules over, which, yeah. I mean, okay. It's fine, I guess. Uh, there's uh, Jim Ross interviews Ricky Steamboat. Heyman shows up and tells him he'll never get a shot at the U.S. title. And then Cactus Jack jumps Steamboat and security has to break it up. I think this led to a Steamboat uh, Cactus match on the Clash of the Champions that sounds super interesting. Yeah, it is funny that we just got done watching Cactus Jack wrestle Sting. And then, like, when I saw this happen, I was like, wow. That also sounds like an amazingly cool match. I bet well, you Steamboat was really cool in it. Yeah, Mick Foley against anybody. Just like Mick Foley and Shawn Michaels. Like Mick Foley. I wish we could have seen Mick Foley against Hogan at some point. He was just so his own type of yeah. wrestler that he was just an automatic breath of fresh air against anybody he wrestled. Yeah, it's one of those guys like you know, William Regal or Fit Finley are kind of the same way that like their style is just so unique that you're interested to see how anybody is going to gel with them. You know, Rob Van Dam, same concept. AJ Styles is like a newer example of that. Except that's an example where it's like, well, I know it's not going to be bad regardless. So. <laughs> Uh, Jesse says he wants to take over the swimsuit contest. Johnny B. Bad comes out. Medusa struts out in a red, white, and blue bikini with some chaps on. Uh, then Missy Hyatt says that her bikini, which was in an envelope, was stolen. So Johnny swipes the scarves that Jesse has covering his head and hands them to Missy. Missy then comes out wearing the scarves as a bikini. Now, we haven't really mentioned, but they have, like, two tiny tents yeah. set up. And the idea is that, is that all throughout the entire show, they've just been in there changing. There's literally just about enough room for, like, a stand-up mirror and them and the nothing else in there. So I do love the idea that they literally had envelopes with their outfits in there. <laughs> and yeah. that she just finally opened it. It was like, oh, no, there's no bikini. And then she steals. And Jesse, despite the fact that a beautiful woman is wearing his clothes as a bikini... <laughs> Is incensed that she has stolen yes. his outfit. Very upset that his bald head is exposed. Um, 
Then the girls get in a fight. Bad comes back holding Medusa's bikini bottoms. And Jesse ducks into the tent to take a look. Scumbag. Again, let me just say that if Jerry Lawler in his uh, Jerry Lawler way so had way skeevier. had done this segment, it would have come off unbelievably rapey. But there's just something about Johnny B. Bad doing it that it just it kind of pulls you away from the skeevy part of it. Yeah. And it just seems like good fun. <laughs> there's just like an asexuality to Johnny B. Bad. I really, really like that character, guys. He's I, just he's charming, but he's not he pop off the screen every time we do one of these shows he's every on. single time i absolutely see what vince saw oh yeah you understand why vince was such a fan like unfortunately it turned out like he couldn't play the johnny b bad character in the wbf and he just like couldn't translate this charisma to playing mark miro there's just something and like there's something they wanted to make mark miro i also feel like there was probably a part of vince that was like all right that johnny b bad character was you know a little gay. How yeah. about you butch it up and be Make super testosterone man. manly man? Yeah. But like, for some reason, that just brought something out of Mark Merrill, being able to play this like this charming asexual gentleman. <laughs> All right. It's main event time for the WCW World Tag Titles. We've got the Steiner brothers defending against Terry Gordy and Steve Williams, uh, known in Japan as the Miracle Violence Connection. What a name. There, It's so funny because there were so many of these nicknames that were really the process of like bad translations from yeah. like people in Japan telling it to English writers and then it going back and forth. So like this and like the holy demon army of Kawada and Tao. That's not really what their names originally were, but those got so over with American audiences that they sort of embraced them. Yeah. So, like, Gordy and Williams are both huge stars in Japan. Um, neither of them has done a ton in WCW because they've both always just, over the previous couple of years, just been in and out. Like, they'll yeah, come the Stan in. Hansen way. Yeah, they'll just come in for a run, but they'll, I mean, they're just kind of doing it between tours of Japan because their Japanese work is so much more lucrative than what WCW can pay them. Oh, man. At this point, they're probably making like minimum 250 over there. <laughs> Yeah, like really good money. Um, I just, but what a pair of badasses these guys are! Just the two biggest, roughest, toughest dudes, and they wrestle like, but they wrestle like a technician style where they're just yes. kind of picking you apart. Like they don't brawl that much. They throw some suplexes, but a lot of it is just working the mat, working holds. Like a, it's a very Japanese style. And that's the funny thing is that like they are some of like the perfect versions of like the King's Road style that we talk about, which is all about just big brawly motherfuckers like beating the shit out of guys and like picking them apart athletically. And like the traditional Japanese guys like having the fighting spirit to come back and overcome that in these like brutal, super long matches. That's what King's Road is built on. So to see it come to WCW like this and to put them up against the Steiner brothers is just a stroke of genius. That's amazing. The Steiners are you know, unquestionably WCW's top team now that the Road Warriors have departed. Um, so battle of the number one team against the two toughest dudes you've ever seen. I don't know why this is going on last. I would have put Sting and Cactus on last. 
Yeah, I think this is just a clear statement of what yeah, Bill this Watts is, thinks is the coolest his shit. style. Yeah. yeah, he's trying to communicate his vision on this show, and this is his vision. Uh, they spend the you know uh, you know Scott and Doctor Death spend the first couple minutes kind of grappling on the mat. Jr. mentions that Rick Steiner has a degree in education from Michigan. That's an all-time <laughs> Jr. fact. Jr. Uh, you motherfucker. I believe he's now on a school board in either Georgia or Florida. Wouldn't that be awesome, though? I bet you he comes out in like his full gear, like PTA meetings and shit, just to pop the little kids. <laughs> yeah, Rob Recksteiner or whatever his real name is. About to say like, oh yeah, you got a problem with that school board? You take it to the dog-faced gremlin. <laughs> Um, huge belly-to-belly suplex by Rick and Dr. Death bails out of the ring. It's funny, Rick, Dr. Death, this is maybe the only match I can think of where he was one of the smaller dudes in the yeah. match. Because he's like the flyer on his he's team. He's bumping here, yeah. Because Bam Bam Gordy ain't taking a bunch of bumps. <laughs> also, how Rick, tall is Bam Bam Gordy? Really I never tall. realized that. He's like 6'8". Really, eight. really tall, yeah. This dude's a huge. Uh, Rick hits a Steiner line on Gordy, but Gordy comes back with a back suplex as the ring announcer calls 10 minutes gone. Um, Rick hits a suplex. Gordy manages to tag out to Williams, who cuts Rick off. Williams uses a leverage move to throw Rick out to the ramp, and he follows up with a big shoulder block. Um, Rick comes back into the ring with a sunset flip. Um, Gordy tags himself in and locks in a half Boston crab. Um, Rick gets out. He hits a belly to belly suplex. He tags out to Scott. Scott hits a T-bone suplex. Um, there's some grappling on the mat as Scott is trying to lock in a bow and arrow, but Gordy's able to block it and tag out to Williams. Um, Williams and Gordy tag in, in, in and out while they're working over Scott as the announcer calls 15 minutes gone. So we're halfway to the time limit. I should note, while this match is super intense, super physical, great technique, the crowd is not, like, interested in this at all. No, and, like, I was talking to you about this a little bit earlier. Part of the problem here is that this is not the style that WCW fans have been trained to appreciate. They've been trained to appreciate, like, the pomp and circumstance and, like, people like Sting and Flair. That's the kind of main events that they're used to. This shit with just, like... Japanese style. Yeah. Everybody's a super tough badass and they're all just hitting each other with bombs and mat wrestling. They haven't been trained to appreciate this yet. No, all the struggling over submissions just doesn't do anything for them because the submissions aren't established as moves that can win the match. Also, only heels do submissions, aside from Sting with the Sting with the Scorpion Deathlock. Other than that, it's all only heels do that. Gordy locks in a step over toe hold. He doesn't put the face lock on, so it's not an STF. Um, Gordy breaks it and then hits a big clothesline. Williams keeps working on Scott's leg. He puts on a Boston crab as the announcer calls 20 minutes gone. Um, Gordy uses the single leg crab and then transitions into a step over toe hold. He tags back out to Williams. Williams uses an elevated crab, which is basically the walls of Jericho. That kicked ass to yeah. see. Yeah, that is a big dude to be wrenching that on you. It looks like he'd break your back. 
This is like as close to like an actual fight as you'll ever see in a wrestling match. Not in that people are like shooting on each other, but just in that this is what would happen if Steve Williams tried to fucking do a Boston Crab on you. He would do it and it would hurt. Scott is able to crawl to the corner and he makes the tag and like shockingly the referee saw it because I like the announcers were even calling like, oh, did he see it? Because they were sure that's what it was going to be. Mm hmm. Uh, Rick hits a power slam, but he only gets two. He hits the Steiner Bulldog off the second rope. They go to set up for a double team move, but Gordy knocks Scott off the second rope. Williams hits a big clothesline on Rick. Gordy hits a power slam off the second rope, but the referee won't count because he says Gordy didn't tag in. Which I thought they tagged, but I guess it was illegal because Gordy was already in the ring. This is one of those things where like, if you're trying to build credibility with your referees yeah. for stuff like this, you're going to have to do this times and it's going to kill the heat a little bit, but you just have to make that sacrifice for a couple of times before it gets over. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Williams makes the cover and Rick kicks out. Uh, Scott is still on the floor trying to recover as the announcer calls five minutes to go. Uh, Gordy and Williams beat down Rick as the announcer calls four minutes left. Uh, Gordy has Rick in a chin lock as the announcer calls three minutes as a note. This is something that should really exist in modern wrestling. I love like calling how much time has gone by. I wish that there had been like maybe like a timer on the screen or that Ross had spent more time actually like referring to it. Cause I feel like before it gets down to one minute, like he never really brings it up. And so it's kind of hard to hear the ring announcer guy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you're kind of just making assumptions on like how long he's saying has gone by because yeah, it's hard to. So it's a little garbled. Yeah. Uh, with two, uh, Williams hits a gut wrench power bomb, and then he gets Rick up to the Oklahoma Stampede with two minutes left, but Rick slips out. He hits the Steiner line. Gordy tags in. He hits a clothesline in the corner so hard the ring moves. That kicks so much ass. God. The ring, I swear, shifted six inches. I have literally never seen that before in my life. Uh, Rick hits a Steiner line with one minute left. With 45 seconds left, Scott tags in. He hits a backdrop. There's 30 seconds left. A backdrop on Williams. Scoop slams on both men. Close lines. A tiger bomb with 15 seconds left. He hits the Frankensteiner right as time expires. I think this was a legit 28 minutes, so they didn't quite get to 30. But, you know, an excellent match. Um, I did not like the time limit draw finish. I don't know why you didn't just put uh, Gordy and Williams over here. That's my problem, is this feels like the exact finish you would do if Gordy and Williams already had the belts and the yeah. Steiners are trying to get them back. Oh, it's a perfect finish for the Steiners when they're chasing the belts. But like to do it as like the first match between the two teams doesn't make any sense. Cause what you're basically doing is like, Oh, Gordy and Williams got saved by the bell, which is not the kind of characters you're trying to put them over as. You no, know, no, they'll end up beating the Steiners in the tag tournament, then beating them for the WCW tag titles and then winning the NWA tag title tournament. So they'll end up being double champions. And like Watts is looking like he's trying to build the promotion around them. But then they run into a problem with Japanese politics as 
uh, Gordy does, you know, refuses to work for New Japan, who WCW has a working agreement with at the time, and he leaves because he's not going to screw up his All Japan deal. Here's the thing: is that one of two things is true. Either Bill Watts did not know that All Japan yeah. and New Japan were a thing, or he did not give a shit. And that's dumb for him because those two companies are the two hottest companies on the planet at this point. And literally anybody would rather work for them than his company right now. Yeah. So for him to treat it like that is just so fucking stupid. Yeah, but he is just super cavalier about the New Japan relationship, which ends up doing a lot of damage to it. And it's something Bischoff really has to work on when he Mm -hmm. takes over to repair it after what Watts has done. It is interesting about like what could have been because like they could have had an all Japan relationship instead because that yeah. actually would have been much better for Watts because those were the dudes that he wanted like that. All of the all Japan guys like that's the one that Stan Hansen has the close relationship with. Yeah. That's like Johnny Ace has been in and out like that's the one. All yeah. the hosses are there. Hansen, Gordy, Williams and um, what Gary Albright feels like a yeah. great fit for this version of WCW. And if you're going to bring in like the younger stars, like, yeah, Muda and Chono are cool, but they don't really fit this era. Mazawa and Kobashi yeah. do, though. Yeah. Like, imagine them. Imagine Mazawa and Kobayashi showing up in this era. Holy shit. Um, uh, we go back to Tony and Bischoff and then to JR and Jesse to wrap up the show, and we roll the credits. I was shocked by how good this show was. This show I, kicked ass. Came into this ready to just like, I mean, it's the it's Bill Watts. Neither of us particularly like him. I think his era of his time running WCW was awful and like set the company back even further than it had been. But this was great. And this is like a vision of how it could have worked. Yeah, this is what I want to give him is he had a very clear identity and vision for this product. And that's something that nobody else had ever had before. Like Bischoff will have a clear vision for how he wants to promote like the television, but he also didn't really have a clear vision for how he wanted the actual product to be run either. This is a really, I'm not going to say it's an amazing idea because we never really got to see it play out. Like, I don't know what the end game is. No, is there's it, a lot of potential here. Yeah. The end game sounds like you have a bunch of like rough and tumble, awesome heels. And then like Ron Simmons runs through them all, which probably eventually would have drawn something. I don't know. I don't know that they had the right baby face for that, but maybe. But the problem is this is really the only one pay-per-view that you can see it. By the time we get to Great American Bash, which haven't we covered that one before? Not this one. This yeah, we did we the bat we did the bash from the year before this, which was right after Flair quit. This bash is all about the tag team tournament. So you get like okay. three Gordy Williams matches, which we may want to watch that sometime. But we've covered like Simmons' title reign before. And by the time you actually get there, this is a disaster. Like, it's fallen apart. The identity is out the window. The wrestlers are in open revolt. Like, it's a dis- it's a disaster. It sucks. Yeah. <sighs> I yeah. really thought this was going to be trash because you oh, guys, you, you guys have to understand, you. like, yeah. at least once a month, we get together and we're like, okay, let's lay out all the, ma- the shows <laughs> we're going to cover for the next month. And without fail, Steve just like, so, did you ever see Beach Blast 1992? And I'm like, no, Steve. Oh, bullshit. <laughs> let's yeah. look at the card. Well, it's a lot of dudes clubbing each other. <laughs> Fine, let's do it. But th- this this show ruled. Like, I'm so yeah. glad we covered this. 
Yeah, I very sorry. I mean, like they were kind of, the Wrestle War had been a great show too with that amazing um, War Games match main event, and it's like yeah, it felt like they, they were, were on, on a roll. Nobody was buying these pay per views was the problem. Like seventy thousand people bought this thing because what was there to sell them? Yeah, a couple non title matches and a tag match with a team that's not really established yet. This is the equivalent because also he's. Russell War was great, but he's already torn apart everything that made that ma- that show good, and so he's thrown that all in the garbage. This is the equivalent of being like the Cleveland Browns, and like we're gonna go zero and sixteen for a while, but eventually we're gonna be really good if you guys just stick with us. And like nobody's, if you put on shows that bad, no one's ever gonna give you a chance to get to like be a good team. Yeah, and part of the and the other problem is. While this show, the wrestling was good, it really looked like shit. Oh like, god, the production's trash. Like it was dimly lit. There's no kind of. There's nothing really between. The transition segments are just like Shivani and Bischoff talking. They don't have any video packages. No pre-taped interviews. Like it's not a good presentation. Yeah, and it's like dark. Sign- it's dimly lit. It's dirty. It's like, built around guys like the Steiner brothers and Gordy and Williams are all cool and everything, but they're not like gigantic star power charisma no. factories. The only person on this show with like an ounce of charisma is Sting and he's buried in the middle of the show. Yeah. So, yeah, you can both see the potential here, but also why it didn't work out. Yeah. So, yeah, that is a wrap for Beach Blast 1992, a surprisingly fun show from a very tumultuous time. Um for WCW. Next time, we've got something I'm really looking forward to as we cover WWECW. Yes, the ECW revival. What might we talk about next week? Well, first of all, speaking of great shows from a tumultuous time, there's nothing like this one for that. This is a show that took on like eight different forms over the course of the few years that it was realistically on from debuting on sci-fi and having to have like zombies and sci-fi characters on it to by the end where it was basically like the herald of NXT as we know it today, which never could have existed if we hadn't had this like forerunner for it. We're going to talk about like all the careers that it rebuilt from Matt Hardy to Christian. And we're going to talk about Bobby Lashley, baby. Yeah. So, yeah. All that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next time.